Welcome to Never Rewrite. I'm Isaac Askew. And I'm Jeffrey Sherman. And today we're joined by Jonathan, uh, special guest Jonathan Stark. Uh, Jonathan is a former software developer on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. He's the author of Hourly Billing is Nuts, the host of Ditching Hourly, and writes a paid newsletter on pricing for independent professionals. I did not know that last part, actually. So It's I, free. It's daily. It's not, it's not paid. Oh, I misread it. That, that is why. <laughs> it's even better. It's, it's even, even better. better. <laughs> then I did know that, and I am a longtime subscriber. Perfect. Um, awesome. We invited Jonathan on today to talk about the parallels between risk in a rewrite and in hourly billing. Uh, so, Jonathan, one of the things that you had said that resonated with us was the concept that if you do a hourly billing, you don't know what the cost of the project is until you get to the end. And we have long talked about how when you do a full rewrite, you don't know like what the opportunity costs are because you have no idea how long it's going to take to get there. And I was hoping we could just chat and go along with that theme. So sure. I guess for our audience, could you tell us why hourly billing makes it really risky to, to do a project? Uh, it's, I mean, projects are risky. Software projects are risky. The question is who's going to take the risk. So if you are out there, you know, I was a software developer for, I don't know, almost 20 years, you know, doing big software projects started out in FileMaker and then PHP when, you know, around PHP four and then into JavaScript and mobile web and responsive web design and all that stuff. So, you know, I've been doing it for, I had been doing it for a long time. I don't do it anymore. And one of the things I found when, when in the early days when I was billing hourly was that it was pretty common. It was painfully common to end up in a fight with the client when a project was, you know, never mind a rewrite, just a regular project was mm -hmm. going much longer than anyone expected because that means that their the amount that they were paying was going much higher than anyone expected. Mm -hmm. And they would be very upset by that. And then it would turn into a, a stressful relationship where they were arguing about hours and pointing fingers and trying to get discounts. And it was uh, really bad. It was a, not a fun way to run a business. So what was happening in that model, or what's, all, what's happening in that model is you're putting all of the risk on the client. The client is taking all hmm. of the risk. They are the ones that are you know, making plans around when you said the software was going to be ready. Maybe they've got a marketing plan or some kind of launch plan or there's some kind of deadline like it needs to be ready before the next presidential election or Olympics or something. They are the only one taking financial risk. You literally can't lose money billing by the hour if you get paid for the time that you work. Hmm. So all of the risk is put on the client. And for folks who have only been employees or billed by the hour, they are completely blind to this. I was completely blind to this. It was like, hey, I put in the hours, you owe me the money. Fair is fair. Mm -hmm. And just absolutely no concept of how scary and risky it is to essentially give someone a blank check and trust them that they're pretty good at predicting the future of these kinds of projects. Uh, once I went solo, and once I sort of had my epiphany, which I don't know if is we can talk about that if you want, but I had this sort of aha moment that hourly billing was a cancer on the firm that I was managing and that I needed, I didn't know what to do instead, hmm. but I needed to do something else. And I went solo to figure it out. And, you know, I didn't want to bring all of that risk onto the owner of the firm and the 10 or you know 15 employees whose uh, 
who, who we were essentially paying their mortgages with payroll. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to expose all of them to me trying to figure stuff out on the fly. So I went solo and I started billing in a fixed way based on value. And the even if you don't base your fixed prices on value, anyone listening that's that's used a fixed price for a project knows the feeling. It is a completely different feeling than billing by the hour. And that feeling that you're feeling is fear. It's the <laughs> risk that you're that, wait, do I really know what I'm talking about? Am I actually good at this? Can I really keep these promises that I've now made to myself, not just the client? So you've got skin in the game when you give a fixed price that you're planning to stick to, like change orders is cheating. So if you're if the client comes to you and says, again, not even a rewrite, just any project and says, hey, you know, how much is it going to cost for you to build this MVP? Or how much is it going to cost for you to put this addition on my house or re-roof my garage? It doesn't matter if it's a if it's a non-trivial duration type of project. It's going to take six months. It's going to take 12 months, 18 months. And the client says, how much is it going to be? And you say it's going to be $100,000. And they say, great. That's a, that's, that is a reasonable price for me. I can get some ROI from that is $100,000. Now, all of a sudden, I, I remember the very first time I, I closed one of these deals and I started working, my whole universe flipped from every hour I work, I'm making 150 bucks to every hour mm -hmm. I'm working, I'm losing 150 bucks. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you magically get much more efficient. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So it's a, it's a, rewrites are their own special hell. But building a pro even a project from scratch, there's a huge amount of unknown and the lower your expertise as the software developer, the higher the risk is. And if you're not taking any of that risk by not committing to a fixed price of some kind, then you're putting 100% of the risk on the client and they're going to behave accordingly, which is yeah, as, as you get up to the budget and you're only halfway done, they're going to become micromanaging monsters. They're going to be going over every bill. They're going to be yelling at you. The emails are going to be all caps. You know, <laughs> it's and it's totally understandable. If you just imagine in your own life, if somebody said, uh, you know, oh, this car is going to be about ten thousand dollars. Do you want it? Well, yeah, I guess that's a you know fair deal. And then they and then like the following and then your payment, you do payments and then. The last payment, it's not the last payment. You get another one the next month. It's like, wait a second, I thought it was $10,000. Well, that was an estimate. And then you keep getting these bills. You keep getting these bills. You keep getting these bills. All of a sudden, the car's $20,000 for a 95 Toyota Celica. And you're like, what? This isn't worth $20,000. It's just, it's, it's insane to me that any client would accept hourly billing for a project. It's madness. So rewrites, well, I'll, I'll pause there because yeah. rewrites have their own special issues right so like we a common thing with rewrites most of the time it's the developers are going to come back to the manager and say look the code is so bad it's so buggy so difficult to make changes we need to stop everything we need to rewrite this from scratch six months and it's going to be smooth sailing from there on out because we're going to have rewritten this code and it's going to be dry and it's going to be <laughs> naggy and all the other the things ignoring the fact that they couldn't have written it that way to begin with. And so how are they possibly going to have writ write it th that way the second time? Especially when they were the ones that wrote it in the first place. Right. And e even if they weren't, even if they weren't, they were the ones who weren't able to 
get the bugs out of the system or keep it from getting worse. And one thing that I've heard many times from developers is, well, I don't want to fix the bugs today. Like, cause I, I, you know, they say, oh, well, I could start fixing the bugs in the system, but then it would never get bad enough to allow me to do a full rewrite. So the, I, <laughs> wow. I haven't heard that one. Oh, you've heard, I've, I've heard at least four developers they want some, it to get worse. So the client is like, we have to rewrite this. Right. Well, these are internal developers. So it's their day oh, job. Right? Okay. So it's, Hey, yes, I'm working on the system and it's terrible. And mm-hmm. I don't want to make it, I don't want to spend any time making it better because then it'll never be bad enough that we get to rewrite it from scratch. Yeah. I know the frustration of inheriting or even creating a horrible code base. It stinks. But if you were, you know, it employs the same situation with hourly because it's like, you've got essentially a blank check to take forever mm-hmm. right? and you'll never lose money. So what they're optimizing for is their experience of their day job, you know? So there's, and this comes in a variety of forms. Another one that I've seen that's really common is like something sexy comes out and they want to rebuild it in that. Mm-hmm. So that's they can put world. it on their resume. Like, Oh, I want to learn react or whatever that heck the new flavor of the day is. And yeah, so I, I totally yeah. understand. And I've done this. I've said, uh, I've said that same stuff. Where I I haven't said that one about like oh I I need to like <laughs> let this thing burn down so that I can rebuild it but yeah I haven't done I have, that myself I have I have, I have yeah I've I've done the thing where it's like where I was either getting I was getting paid on some time basis either salary or hourly and inherit somebody's code base and it is it is truly awful tons of technical debt all the problems that you'd expect from that. Like it takes forever to develop things. It takes forever to fix bugs. There's a lot of regression bugs. There's, it's very difficult to the clients asking for new features and they want them faster and you can't do it. And they kind of stink and the performance is horrible and they're complaining about the performance. And I I totally get it. Like I've been there. The, the, the thing uh, we're just going to talk about risk the whole time. I mean, the thing that it comes back to is like, if I was in a scenario like that, let's say I'm a long-term contractor or I'm an employee at this place and the code base that I inherit is just garbage. It's in a language I don't know that well and it, it's, it's truly bad. But it's making them money and there are hundreds of internal users using it every day. They're using this garbage interface that's slow and buggy and there are thousands of customers using it. And, and I am as the expert because the, the boss or the owner is probably not technical as the expert, the trusted advisor, right? I'm saying throw all of that cash flow and stability and brand reputation out the window, or at least put it at risk. Mm-hmm. So I can learn react or so that I can get rid of this frustrating daily experience. I should probably quit. Right. Like that would be the more noble thing to do to just Mm -hmm. be like, I can't with this code. Forget this This is just too much of a mess and rewriting it would be way too risky to you. That would be extremely enlightened for me to have that position be like rewriting. This would be way too risky. So how do the question becomes like, nobody can see the future. The question becomes who can see the future, the clearest, or who can at least assess the risk appropriately and then distribute it appropriately. Mm-hmm. So let's say, let's say this would be super weird with an employee scenario, but let's say it was a, a contractor type of scenario. You're freelancing, you've, you've built, you've been brought in to work on this code base that this, this person has. So you're kind of inheriting it. 
Right. More of a staff og job than an right. actual consultant. Right, right. And you, you'd need to have some price. So you'd need to be, so let's say you're having a conversation with the buyer and you're like, you say all the things, technical debt, this is terrible. All the problems we're having are because of this code base. We have no choice but to rewrite. And the owner, the client would obviously want to know how long is it going to take? How much is it going to cost? And how sure are you that it's actually going to fix the problems? Mm -hmm. But if we even mm -hmm. just leave that one aside, let's just assume that you're definitely going to fix the problems, which is a huge question mark. How much is it going to cost and how long is it going to take? Right? And if you can't answer that question, how could they possibly make a decision? Right? If you can't mm -hmm. answer that with some degree of certainty, they can't decide. So if you, but, but people who are the seller in this scenario will think that they They'll, well, it'll be, it'll be, let's see, my rate's $100 an hour. It'll be 1,000 hours, like six months. And so it'll be $100,000. And if the client, so how could we, how could we reveal the risk assessment and where the mm -hmm. risk is living? The buyer could say, okay, so you're telling me in six months, 1,000 hours, at $100 an hour, you're going to be, not only are you going to be done with the rewrite, but I'm going to have all these benefits that you're promising me that the re-rate will deliver. And you right. say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an estimate, but yeah. Right. And then the buyer <laughs> says to you, I'll bet you $50,000 you're wrong. <laughs> now you've got skin in the game. If you take that bet, you, first of all, that person would never take that bet. I would unless, never take that bet. <laughs> no, unless they were super, do I mean, you'd be free $50,000 though. Right. Yeah. Come in at or around 50, uh, 100 grand. And you get a $50,000 bonus. Yeah. But if you don't, you, you owe do. them $50,000. Yeah. Right. And, and development's going to continue. So you're probably going to earn it back over the next three or four months. They always go, but whatever. Yeah. If you, the, the, the real illustration here that, that, that we want to call out for the people who are considering a rewrite, who are absolutely for sure, either completely inexperienced or getting paid for their time. So it's one of those two things because people that give fixed prices would almost never do a rewrite unless it was a tiny project that was not even launched yet and no one was using it. It wasn't mission critical. Like any mission critical system that's in use by internal employees, customers, a big system, which is the only system worth talking about. I'm presuming that right. the systems are reasonably, or we wouldn't even have this conversation. So it's a big undertaking. Nobody would, you'd be insane to give a fixed price for that. You would look for any other way to do it. You'd be mm -hmm. like, oh no, I'll live with this code base. I'll find ways to work around it. I'll black box the old code base and build a new thing on the side. And we'll like slowly migrate. We'll build modules in a mm -hmm. new way and then slowly rebuild it over time without, you know, we'll, we'll rebuild the plane in flight in a safe, like milestone based way instead of like a big bang rewrite where <laughs> you just, you're like, oh, you know, I'll never make, I would never make these errors over again, or I'd never make these same errors. You make brand new ones in the mm -hmm. rewrite. So it's just like it a hundred percent is going to boil down to who is taking it. How big is the risk and who's taking it really who's taking it? Because as soon as you take on some risk, all of a sudden you're going to get pretty smart at sort of guesstimating how much risk we're talking about. Right. That is a strange thing about risk is if you actually, even if it's $5, people's ability to guesstimate how much risk they're taking on for some reason in our brains, as soon as there's actual money on the line, yeah, <laughs> we, we really evaluate it in ways that we don't when we're just guessing. 
Yeah. So on my podcast, The Business of Authority, we interviewed uh, Annie Duke, who wrote a book called Thinking in Bets, which was like my favorite book of the year when I read it. It was it's so good. So the in the to boil it all down to the core premise, if you're the type of person who is very certain, just speaks in a way that's very certain, like this is going to be, or this is this, this very, very, this is, imagine the person you're talking to, every time you make a proclamation, this is going to take six months. Imagine them saying, you want to bet? How much you want to bet? About every certainty that comes out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. And it will change the way you look at the world. Because you, I'm guilty. Like I was, you know, sort of that sort of employee mentality, internal software developer. All my bosses were managers. They were idiots. They didn't do anything (laughs) right. They didn't know how hard this is. They don't know how great I am. You know, that like developer ego. And I would say things all the time, like that can't be done, or this is how we have to do it or whatever, like just certainty, these certainties. And if they were like, how much you want to bet? If you're so certain, I mean, you, any amount of money, right? You, you're positive, right? So you will, how much money do you have in your bank account? You'd bet all that, right? And the answer is no. All of a sudden it makes you step back and say like, huh, how much would I bet? A thousand mm-hmm. bucks? No. 500 bucks? No. Well, it depends on the odds. Uh, well, right. But, <laughs> but now I'm calculating the yeah. odds. The person who's making the estimate is now calculating the odds. So instead of the person who's making the estimate, instead of the person who has no control over any of it, calculating the odds, like Mm -hmm. the buyer and non-technical buyer has absolutely no, or or a much lower, way lower percentage chance of estimating how fast you can build something that you designed. I mean, there would, there would be like, I mean, you're definitely going to have a better, and I will bet you, you name the price. I'll bet that the person who is, planning the work and is going to execute the work is in a better position to estimate how long it's going to take than a non-technical person who's paying them. So the odds are way better that the person who is designing and doing the work designing and implementing the, the software project or doing the rewrite or whatever is going to have a better feeling for how much they would bet. It's, it's not even like, how long do you think it's going to take? What's your level of certainty? The, the Annie Duke line just cuts mm-hmm. right to the, the chase. Mm-hmm. It's like, how, all right, how much do you want to bet? And, and if you, in your, you know, in your, uh, in all honesty, if you're like, wow, I wouldn't really bet that much, then you, you're, you're doing a disservice to the client. Like if you're so unsure that you wouldn't bet a hundred bucks that you're right, like one hour's pay over a, a thousand hour project, then you are really under it. You're, you're, you're really throwing <laughs> yeah, really. under the bus. I feel like there's, we're touching not just on risk, but like an element of trust as well. Like maybe they're, you know, they're pretty related, I imagine. Hmm. Um, because like sometimes with, when, when you have like an employee, for example, who pitches something like a rewrite, they're, depending on how long they're there, like the tenure or how many projects they've worked on or how successful right. they've been, the trust levels for them could be you know, maybe that's kind of actually skewing some of their thought processes like, oh, well, you know, I really trust this guy. I think he can get it done, even though they can't give me that, uh, how many hours it's going to take, how long it's going to take, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, that's, that's part of the risk is that trust. And maybe even kind of uh, associated with the idea of hourly versus project billing too. There's still that same trust 
gap that you have to bridge uh, because people might be used to the hourly billing because it just, for some reason, that's just the way we've done things. And they need to trust you that even though they, you might have to give them a bigger, a bigger looking number, it could be the same number. It could come out of the same number hourly, mm-hmm. but you give them a big number up front. That's the project number. Mm-hmm. Then they go back to that. Can I trust this person? Is this really yeah. going to happen? So there's like, right. that's still that kind of like that little, how do you, I wonder how you, how do you build that trust over time? Yeah. I'm so glad you brought this up because what you're talking about is authority. So not the, I tell you what to do kind of authority, but like the authority in your space, like an author an expert, a recognized expert. Mm-hmm. So when you're an employee, it's actually pretty easy to become a recognized expert by delivering on your promises all the time. Right. So you become famous to your boss or whoever's, who, whoever's in charge that they can trust you because you've made small promises and then medium promises and then large promises and you keep your promises so they can trust you. You are in their mind, you're an authority on whatever it is that you do. So like for me, the only internal job I ever had was doing FileMaker development at, at Staples corporate headquarters. I was like the internal, uh, it was like a DBA. I think my title was database architect or something. And we made workflow systems, internal workflow systems. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't realize this at the time, but looking back on it, it was clear to me that, you know, the more home runs I hit, for product employee productivity with such stuff, I'd be like, you know what, this, I can automate this. I can automate this. I can automate this. I can streamline this. The more promise, the more promises I made and then kept, it's just like any relationship. They're, they're going to trust you more. You become a, it's weird to use this term in this, in an internal employee model, but you're becoming an authority on the technical aspects of whatever you do in a consulting uh, world, if you're just out there consulting, you need to become an authority in your space for keeping promises that are big. So what does that look like? It looks like glowing testimonials from big clients and people are like, well, you know, she's entertainment weekly was super happy with the outcome and TechCrunch was super happy with the outcome and staples right. and, and T-Mobile, they were like, wow, everybody's like giving this guy five stars. Then I'm talking about myself, guy or gal, but if then it's like, wow, we can trust them. Like they make promises and then keep them. Like in my entire career, giving fixed prices, I never charged somebody a dime more than the price that they agreed to, even if it took me an extra year to finish the project. And they can go in and that trust. So you're 100% right. Like, because we're talking about predicting the future and the, the trust is not just in your expertise around the technical you know, workings of whatever you do, like whether it's React or Node or whatever, it's not just that you know what you're doing and you can make something that scales to the moon, but it's also that you're excellent at hitting deadlines or estimating or all the other pieces of being a professional consultant or even as an employee, like, like it's, there's two pieces to it. So like, do, do they trust you to be able to accomplish the goal that they want? That's one piece that's probably easier to build trust. And then the other piece is, and can they do it in the time frame that they are estimating? And possibly there might be a cost associated there too that goes up and down mm-hmm. with the time, depending on the business model. So they need to trust you at both of those things. So you could be the best developer in the world, but be terrible at estimates and your customers all hate you and would never <laughs> work with you again because it always takes you 10 times longer than you thought, mm-hmm. even though you eventually got to the goal. Right. So 100%, like we're talking about predictions of the future. So they're very difficult to very, it's, you know, predictions are hard, especially about the future, right? Like Yogi yeah. Berra. 
So, but someone's got to do it because they need to calculate the risk. And it's much easier. Another thing on trust, it's much easier to trust someone who has the same financial incentives you do. Mm. So the buyer in an hourly model, the financial incentives are misaligned. This as the seller, if I'm the developer, the slower I am, the more money I make. It's like, it's like I might, for other reasons, I might want to be fast to keep them happy or to maybe um, adhere to some professional ethic or mm-hmm. work ethic that I have. But there's no financial incentive to be faster. Slower, the better. All right. If I take right. twice as long, I just doubled my income. And there's the same misalignment with a rewrite uh, if you're going to use any new technology. Like if you're, part of your goal is to learn a new technology, then you are wildly misaligned. Like if you're Wildly. If you've got, a, I guess, a crappy PHP project and you're going to rewrite it in PHP, then it's less misaligned. But if you're like, <laughs> oh, this is bad PHP, I'm going to rewrite mm-hmm. it in Go because Go is the new hot backend right. language. Yeah. Now, like, is there, right. So that, that, like, padding your resume thing is 100% misaligned. Correct. It's like, do a side project. Get them to, do, you know, like, don't, <laughs> don't. Don't take that risk for them. Mm-hmm. It's bonkers. And so I'm not saying like just do PHP for the rest of your life. You can, there are other ways to like improve your resume without risking a client's business. It's just insanity. It's like, it's so, it's a horror. It's so bad. <laughs> so bad. But yeah, so, so trust is a huge thing. What are you, what is your ability to predict the future and how accurate is it? And the more, I like, I like doing, um, we could talk about this in software terms, but just in general, it's a a great way to build trust. And probably the only way to build trust, I haven't thought about it that much is to keep, uh, make promises and keep them and start small, start with small promises and then make bigger ones and then bigger ones and then bigger ones and then bigger ones and then bigger ones. And And you just got to keep keeping Mm -hmm. your promises and people eventually will be like, well, this person's, it's like, that's, I mean, that's brand building basically. Hmm. So that is in doing it as a solo, that is going to get you bigger clients. It's going to justify higher fees as an employee. It's going to get you promoted uh, or it's going to get you, you know, if you go to another place, you're going to get a better job because people trust you to deliver on what you promised. So if there's something I want to make sure that we get to, which is like something that something that uh, the buyer in this case, or the employer in this case can do to combat the employee or contractor who's like, we have to rewrite, we have to rewrite, we have to rewrite. So we can, we can bookmark that. But um, was there anything else on trust that you wanted to wanted Um, to raise? That's most of it. I guess part of it kind of skews more away from the risk conversation. And I, and I was kind of just like curious at that concept. You mentioned like testimonials, for example, being the only mm. way really to, to build that trust outside of the employee. It's one contract. way. It's a big way. Referrals so, is another one, you know. And so I guess my mind just immediately went to the curiosity around like how would, if you had none to begin with, um, how would you even start? But Small, I, yeah. You make yeah. small promises and build up from there. So, and the thing about trust, it's not completely dis- disconnected from risk. It's, it's risk mitigation. It's you uh, demonstrating that you're an expert at not just your technical skill, but your ability to estimate how long it's going to take. You're, it's mm-hmm. basically business acumen. Hmm. So you, your, your ability to think like a business owner and a technician or an entrepreneur and a technician, you have demonstrated historically that 
you're an expert at both of those things, then that's going to decrease the perceived risk in the buyer because they're going to be like, well, you know, every, every time, like pretty much every time they just nail it on time on budget, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, all right, why, why wouldn't that happen again? That's great. I'm super curious though, about, cause we never, I don't think we've ever gone into how to push back against uh, a rewrite. Yeah. So I love, there's a model that uh, David Gutman shares in a book called the Superstruct manifesto. And you know, the iron triangle, right? Like, uh, what is it? Fast, cheap, good, pick yeah. two. Mm-hmm. So he, he's really big on, he, he helps non-technical founders or anybody who really de- depends on teams of developers to get things done. He helps them uh, get more out of their developers. So like essentially not fall prey to things like we have to rewrite this with the shiny new thing. And, and this specific piece I just absolutely loved when I, I read it was that he's, he's super like, you have to require software estimates. You have to require mm-hmm. that your developers estimate. Cause if you give them an estimate, this is, this is total employee mm-hmm. situation, right? Or contractor staff log situation where it's very top down and the buyer or the product person is like, this is what the feature is going to be. And, and at making the developer estimate how long it's going to take. We're not talking about projects now. We're just talking about little features, features. Like small things. And when it comes to something that's maybe a little bit bigger or something that's tough to break down into individual pieces, not getting an estimate is like writing a blank check. They can just go off in their closet and go into their cave and like play with whatever they read about on Hacker News today. Um, But if you say, well, how long do you think it's going to take? Like, you can tell me however long you want. It's like, there's no punishment if you say 10 weeks. It's just, I just want to know how long you would guess that this is going to take. Because if you don't do that, then you just have no idea what to budget for. Mm. You know, because again, this is probably like a contractor type of situation or a salary type of situation. So the longer it is, the more expensive it is. And someone who's saying like prioritizing features, if they find out that this thing that they thought would take a day is going to take a year, that's going to cause them to reprioritize things. It's no like shame on the person for like it. There's nothing like it shouldn't take you that long. Like none of that. Just like how long do you, the person who's going to do the work, think it's going to take? You could be right or wrong, but I want to get a ballpark. Mm-hmm. And so they say some ballpark. Oh, it's going to, I think it's going to take a week. It should be done. Like it's Monday. It should be done next Monday. Okay. Um, tell me as soon as that's that's turns out if you find out that that's incorrect it's either too high or too low just let me know immediately as soon as you start to sense that you were mm-hmm. off in either direction uh, but yeah if it's if it's anywhere in the ballpark of a week that's fine you can move forward so the thing that that uh david says is like when you're getting when you ask them for those estimates if you get one that's really long and it seems unusually long which for a rewrite, it's always going to be, it's always going to be so much longer than they expect. Yeah. It's going to be way longer than they even say. Then you'd say, okay, that's the, let's call that the good way, you know, uh, fast, cheap, good. Hmm. Let's say that's okay. I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying is like the, the right way to do this. The good way to do this, the high quality way to do this is to rewrite the whole thing from scratch. Okay. That'll be the most expensive and the slowest. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what would be the cheap way to do it? Mm. What would be the fast way to do it? Maybe expensive, but fast. 
So make them come up with three solutions. This is another thing David talks about in the book is like, don't accept the first, their first solution to the problem. You present them with a problem or a feature request and they're going to have a gut instinct of how to do it. That you don't let them get addicted to that or get hooked on that because then it'll just be a fight about why or why not to do that. There's always different ways to do things. There's always different ways to skin the cat. And the developers are almost always going to go with the good way, the high quality way, Hmm. because it's not their money. So they might as well (laughs) spend the money. For sure. So if you force them to every time, like anything that's going to require a conversation, like how are we going to do this? And they're almost always going to come back with the good way. Sometimes they'll come back with the fast way. Like the like or the cheap way, like the band aid. Like certain developers do like that sort of band aid. Like ah, we can sort of judo this into shape, but they're almost always going to come up with the the expensive way. So it's like okay, that's I, I'm hearing you. That's the high quality. That's the best way. That's the right way to do it. What would be the cheap way to do it? Come up. What would what would that look like? What would be the fast way to do it? You know, and have them come up with three different solutions mm-hmm. and estimate all three, time and cost. If, if those are different, they're usually the same in an hourly model. Time and cost is basically the same in an hourly model. But what, what do you think the time and cost would be for these three different types of solutions? And what are the pros and cons of these three different types of solutions? And forcing the developer to do that gives the non-technical buyer what they need to pick between the three things. Hmm. So it might be just from, from a timing standpoint, maybe they're in some cash flow crunch. Maybe they've made some huge promise to a client that they're going to, if they don't, uh, meet that they're probably going to lose the client. So there could be some short-term things that make it really reasonable to take on technical debt. Like that's not always bad. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you need to take on technical debt in the short term or, or financial debt in the short term. It's leverage. It's a way to create leverage. So, yeah. So if you come up with those three things and present them and then sort of have a discussion around what the, what the, the right fit, the right path forward is the one that's the best balance of, of risk for the person who's taking on the risk, then I, I think that, I think that would lead to, I've never done this. This is something that I've only, I, this book is new. I've only just learned mm-hmm. this. I wish I had known it back when I was getting software estimates from people, but yeah, it's I lo- genius. I really like it. Yeah. It, it kind of touches on, we had a recent episode talking about like understanding how your business makes money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we touched on this a while back too, about how much would I pay myself if I was hiring myself and would I be happy with the job <laughs> that I'm doing currently? Yeah, yeah, would, would I be yeah. happy I'm paying somebody the amount I'm getting paid to do some right. silly thing that I'm doing right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that money that being too. tied into it is a really big piece. Uh, so yeah, I do like this. It's all businesses. No one's doing this as a hobby. And so what's the bottom line? They want to make more money, period. Right. And so I... I and, I have definitely fallen into the trap of we have to do it the good way. Like this is right. my integrity on the line. We have to do this <laughs> the most yeah. expensive way because like, right. why would I, I went to college for this. You know, like, um, and then from the business aspect, I had to learn this too over the you know past five years that I need, uh, need to come from, come at it from the perspective of the business who's paying me a lot of money. And they go, you know, we understand that you want to do this the slowest, <laughs> most expensive way because it matches with like how you were taught your identity, yeah. your yeah. identity even. But we, we can't afford that, and we're going to do it this way. So like forcing them to have that thought exercise of what's the cheap way of doing this mm-hmm. uh, it is kind of a way to make them a little more creative outside of that box of this is my identity and who I am. I really yeah. I think I'm actually going to use that too. I really enjoy right. that. Well, it also opens up their eyes more because I, I think mm-hmm. a lot of times they don't really understand the trade-off that like, oh, well, we'll just take on some technical debt. It's like, 
Okay. You can do that? <laughs> well, no, you, you can do that. But like, if they don't understand that, hey, yeah. you're taking on technical debt to get this thing out faster. Because there's a lot of times, like I've been in a lot of projects where it's like, yeah, we need to get this out as fast as possible because the market is changing. Right. And if we yeah. don't get it out, we're going to, we'll be out of business in a year. Yeah. Window of opportunity. Amazon's coming into our space. We need to gobble up market share. There's, there's all kinds of business reasons why you'd want to go mm -hmm. faster than you air quotes should. Right. And of course I can hear the people listening being like, yeah, but that, but they're always going for the cheap option. It's like, well, maybe that's not a good client for you. Maybe that's not a good place to work. If they're always thinking True. short term and that drives you crazy, go somewhere else. So, you know, but it's their money. Like if you're, if you are billing for your time, you're taking no risk. And like, if, if you learn nothing or if you take nothing away from this conversation, it should be that if you're getting paid for your time, you're taking no risk and you're just not even understanding what's going on in the client's mind at all. So mm -hmm. if, if you're, let's say you're an employee and, and this is all brand new to you, this is the first time you're even considering looking at it from their point of view and like the financial risk they're taking on and that you're taking on none and you're thinking about going solo, do not go solo until you understand this concept or you're, it would be the long, the odds are long. It's high, low odds that, that you're going to have a good couple first years, mm -hmm. you know, it's mm. just like, you, you can really, if anybody, I don't know how many people listening are thinking about going solo or contracting or whatever, but if you can understand the business components of these decisions and not just the technical ones, you're going to be a mile ahead of everyone else. You'll have like your competition will collapse by a factor of 10 because all of a sudden you can speak in terms of dollars, mm -hmm. like things, business outcomes, things business owners care about, things that people who write checks care about, right? you know, right. timelines, deadlines, budget, you know, results, value, risk. No one cares. Like if you like, you know, which brand of JavaScript you use. There's more than one now. <laughs> there, to me, the old guy like me, there is like 2016. I was just like, come on. Oh, TypeScript. <laughs> <laughs> no, even regular JavaScript. I'm like, I'm like, could we make this more magical? Uh, anyway, this is, I don't want to go down that path. I'm going to lose my credibility. Uh, I, I'm a back end developer, and I, I increasingly refuse to dabble in the front end because I just, I'm just bad at it, and I don't want to put in the effort to get better. Now, the problem with front end is, <laughs> is like, even non technical people can have an opinion about it, and mm. I, I think back end yeah. is a much safer place to be if you want to be treated as an expert and left alone. Mm. It is much harder to, to demo the effect of your work, though. <laughs> People are like, oh, I made it much well, faster, and now this exists. And you're like, oh. hey, if that's what they wanted, though, it's very easy to demo. The problem <laughs> yeah. is they didn't want it. Yeah. <laughs> if you built something they didn't want then that's or true. didn't care about, then that's on you. Right. I mean, that goes back to our, our last episode. We were going on the concept of... Uh, volunteering for the maintenance work as a flight to safety in uncertain times where hmm. if your company's going through layoffs, oh. the one who can go, the one volunteering to be the person who knows how to keep the lights on is a flight to safety. And if you can then force yourself to move up to the next level of, I'm not the person who can keep the lights on. I'm the person who fixed the system so that nobody needs to keep the lights on. Then that's where you become this trusted person inside the company. The authority in that point. The we use yeah. the same word in that, in that sense, yeah. Right, right. Do you guys ever talk about the thing that always, because again, I was just like, 
I was the rewrite guy. Like, I want to do this over. This is garbage. <laughs> it, it will take me less time to re do it from scratch than it would be to fix this thing. Like, who hasn't said that, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing that the problem, it's just total, it's just a complete lack of experience. The, those, that comes from a complete lack of experience. And like the first time, the first time you go to rewrite a system and you realize that there's no one left at the company, the client or your employer who understands the business logic that's baked into the system, that's hard coded into the system. No one knows why it's there. Mm -hmm. No one knows what it's, I mean, they know what it's for probably. They don't know why it's the way it is and it looks wrong. Mm -hmm. And you have to rebuild that. How yeah, it's, it's next to impossible. Especially if you, most people who are doing the rewrites, like, oh, well, there's no tests. And I don't want to build yeah, a test, right, on the old system. Yeah. This is where we would preach of, well, let's, you know, before you take on the massive part of the risk of a rewrite, let's do something less risky. Why don't you write tests so you understand what it is you can be rewriting? the behavior, yeah. What's the cheap way? What would be the cheap way to get some tests in there? Yeah. Uh, here's a quick story. I, I was my eyes began to become open to this when I was at stable, I was still internal and there was, uh, and I was doing FileMaker, and I felt like I was a real, it was basically a script kitty, right? I wasn't really a programmer <laughs> and I was a power user. And there was a guy there who was an ASP developer, which at the time, this is like 19, 1999, 2000 dot com boom, you know, and I was like, I just worshiped this guy. I was like, mm -hmm. Oh, I want to be, I want to be like that. I want to write ASP or whatever, you know? And, uh, they pulled me and him into a meeting about a total greenfield brand new project. And I was like, I was just like so flattered that I was even in the room. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is gonna be so much fun. It's gonna be like touchscreen kiosk stuff. It's gonna be so cool, so much cooler than I'm gonna get to leave the office and go to like the remote locations and stuff. I was like very excited. <laughs> and the 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 and and we were meeting with like really high level and executives that were never anywhere near. So I was like, Oh, I was feeling like an authority. I was feeling like, Oh, I, I must be hitting home runs. And so they, they're talking to us and they explain what they want to do. And they, and they, and they said, look at us and they say, how would you do it? And I'm like planning out the entity relationship di diagram in my head and the tables that would be in the database and all of this stuff. And the other guy, the guy that really knew what he was doing, he goes, they said, how would you do it? And he said, manually. <laughs> and he just total mechanical Turk. Don't use software at all. Don't the internet was still new. It was like, don't depend on the network. Just do it manually. Just have someone drive down there with a thumb drive and just look, upload it every day. And I was, and like, I was so far down this path of a million dollar mm -hmm. project. And he was like, no, nah, just do it manually. You know, we don't even know. You don't even know if it's going to work. Like if people are going to want it. So just basically he was like MVP it with, uh, mm. you know, and I was just, and he was, and he was, I was in, in that moment, I knew he was hundred percent right because yeah. he was right. It was going to be really hard, but it never occurred to me to think of a, a way that didn't involve me engaging in activities that I enjoyed engaging in. So I was not right. thinking in the client's best benefit. I was not thinking. Oh, and you also don't think about like. The, the actual cost, like what would be the hourly cost, so to speak, in this? Yeah, I was spending their money yeah. like a sailor. <laughs> the hourly cost of having someone manually drive down and do that, which is probably substantially less than a yeah, hundred times less. Up. Right? <laughs> Elegant? No. Uh, no. Cool? No. I wouldn't have thought that either. That's such a great. I really like yeah. the anecdote. A, a decade ago, I worked for a mortgage processor, and they had a similar philosophy of, well, we could automate that, or we could 
hire somebody who just got a liberal arts degree to do it and make them do it manually until they get disgusted and quit. And then we'll hire another one. Mm-hmm. And my initial reaction was, oh, my God, that's so horrible. And I So inefficient. About, well, I'm like, it's so horrible for this person. And I thought, like, oh. but I couldn't make software to do it better. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, in fact, when I'm having a why conversation with if I back when I was doing consulting gigs and doing projects and, and sales calls, when someone you know, they they only called me in when they knew they wanted to build the kind of thing that I built. Makes sense. And yeah. and so so they are already decided, you know, they've they've self-diagnosed, they've prescribed the solution, and they're not the doctor. And so I would come in and and the main question, one of the big questions I would almost always ask is why not just do it manually? Like why do you need mm. to use software to do this? which always made them sit back and be like, well, you're a software guy. Aren't you kind of talking yourself out of this job? And I was like, I don't want to do this job. If I don't want to build software for you if there's an easier, faster, cheaper way to do it. So why not just hire, you know, oh, you're having a problem getting your invoices out? Just hire three more people in accounts receivable. Like, why don't you just do that? And they're like, yeah. we thought of that. We tried that. We don't have room for them. The ongoing costs we think are going to be too high. Oh, really? What, what are the ongoing costs of having, how many do you think we'd have to hire? Probably five. All right, how much mm. would that be per year? Uh, probably, I don't know, like half a million dollars, fully loaded costs. I just heard, oh, oh I've got a half a million dollar budget. Or oh, at least, yeah. so if I come to them with a proposal for 25000 uh, you know, maybe three options, 25000 70000 and I don't know, like one hundred twenty-five. that's all way lower than hiring five employees, which wouldn't even get them what they wanted. So like that employees thing and the just do it manually thing is fantastic for value pricing if that's what you wanted to do. That's I talk about value pricing a lot. We haven't really mm-hmm. touched on that, but that's that exact story. Both of those stories are the same. And essentially it's like, what would be the cheap way? What would be the easy way? What would be the obvious way to do this? And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that way? It's uh, it also helps build that trust as well. Like if it's, if you're if you're talking yourself out of the job, you know, like, <laughs> and you're giving them an option that oh, why don't, why don't you try this easier way? It's it's mm-hmm. in their best interest, and they go oh, hmm, this person is not just trying to milk me for my cash. They exactly. presented me an option yeah. that would actually send them away, but maybe they're thinking in my interest, and maybe they call you back later if you yep. if they have another problem, and they're like, well, last time you gave us a really good option that made sense to us and was in our interest. Well, let's bring them back in for this other kind. Right, you'll be first yep. up next time. Right. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, it's long, I mean, it's more long-term thinking. Sometimes you're not in a position to think like that. But True, yeah. yeah, that's a good one, though. Cool. Where we, yeah. Do we have anywhere to go next? I don't know how long we've been talking. Oh, we're at 46 minutes, so we've, we've gone a little long, but I <laughs> okay. love it. Cool. Uh, I think we're in a good place to wrap. What do you think, Isaac? Yeah, uh, we touched on everything, uh, Jonathan, that you – you mentioned bookmarking something. Did you touch? Did you touch on everything from that book? Yes, the yeah. the iron triangle thing. Yeah, okay, cool. yeah, and how to combat the 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 eager developer who wants to do <laughs> things the right way, which is you know reasonable. commendable. It's yeah, reasonable. Yeah. Right, but it's not always the right business decision. Cool. You, yeah, I think you referenced two two books um, here, so I'll um, throw those in the show notes as well. That way, a uh, listener can. Right. There was Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke and yeah. Super the, Trust Manifesto by David yes. Gutman. Superstruct. It's oh, weird. Oh, Superstruct. Yeah. Superstruct. Yeah. If you search for David Gutman on Amazon, you'll find it. G U T T M A N. Nice. Uh, one right. more that I wanted to throw out there, real quick, for books. Uh, How to Measure Anything also has I a whole. I mentioned s- that too. <laughs> he, he, the, I don't remember the author's name, but he goes into thinking about when you are going to be 95% sure and you would be confident at making a 95% bet. 
It's one of my favorite books of all time. Douglas Hubbard's the author's name. <laughs> great recommendations. <laughs> I have some catching up to do. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's it's like to drop an acid. That book, will, you'll never see things the same way again. <laughs> yeah, that book is really good. All right. All right. Well, cool. thank you all for listening. I'm Jeffrey Sherman. And I'm Isaac Askew. And this is Never Rewrite.